0: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The White Wolf of the Hearts Mountains and other lycanthropic tales. Terrifying Werewolf Tales from the Recent Past Werewolves are among our most ancient and deepest fears. The beast run amok in human form is not a thing of the ancient past. We see headlines about it every day. Shootings, beatings, and other savage acts are part of our lives. Here are seven horrifying classics written between 1939 and 1956, including a shocker from the legendary Weird Tales, plus the fascinating historical essay, The Origin of the Werewolf Superstition. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The White Wolf of the Hearts Mountains and Other Lycanthropic Tales.
1: Ena, Manly Bannister, 1947. The she wolf was silhouetted sharply against the moon gilded waters of Wolf Lake, silent as death in the cover of a rotting log. Joel Cameron sighted along a dully gleaming rifle barrel. He squeezed the trigger. The gray tipped wolf leaped high, cavorted grotesquely in midair. The beast threshed in short-lived agony upon the ground and lay still. Joel ejected the cartridge from the smoking chamber. Five bucks and all profit, he grunted, anticipating the state bounty. In the act of legging over the log, he stopped and swiftly raised his weapon. His attention had been so intent upon the she-wolf as she slunk from the forest edge. He had not noticed the whelp that followed her. Terrified, the whimpering wolf-cub galloped toward the safety of the woods. Joel dropped his rifle and sprinted. I'll be darned, he panted, scooping the wolfling up into his arms. An albino whelp! In this manner, Ina, the she-wolfling, was introduced to the world and the ways of men. Joel's cabin was a mile down the lake shore, hidden in a wooded draw that protected it from wind and weather and separated from the edge of the lake by a thin screen of timber. Joel Cameron had been born and raised in the high pine woods. Later fortune, through the medium of a battered typewriter and a skillful ability to weave a fanciful yarn, had led him to life in the city. But each spring he returned to the cabin he had built in the hills and stayed there until the crispness of early autumn presaged the coming of snow. It was an ideal life, one to which Joel's temperament was ideally suited. When editorial favor inclined to the lean side, which it often did, he could depend upon the cabin in the mountains for refuge from the palsied palms of greedy landlords. The state wolf bounty kept the figurative wolf from his door by inviting the literal one within. Ina proved to be different from the usual wolf kind. Joel recognized this from the first— Even her albinoism was different. She lacked the red eyes usually associated with the lack of pigmentation. They were gray-hazel, and they gave Joel a weird sense of being somehow human. They were distinctly out of place in the snow-white, lupine visage of the wolflet. Ina grew rapidly and prodigiously. At one time or another, every homesteader in the valley below passed by to see the albino. Some admired her look of intelligence, the growing strength of her. Some deplored the fact that a wolf so handy for killing should be allowed to live. Pierre Le Brut, a trapper who had a tumbled-down cabin a mile away, rubbed his palms on his greasy overalls and spat toward the caged wolf. Cameroon, said he. I catch her. I kill her. You bet. He scowled at the white wolf. And Ina's hackles raised in response. She bad one, all right, Pierre growled. She bring bad luck, you see. The man went away, and Joel crouched by the chicken wire fence of Ina's pen. He had got into the practice of talking softly to the animal. Kill you? Not you, my beauty, he chuckled fondly. The half grown wolf cocked her head at him and stared with unblinking gray hazel eyes. Sometimes I wonder if you'd let me scratch your ears. He smiled through the fence. Ina lulled her tongue with a friendly grin. On the other hand, Joel told her, I need both my hands to type with. You're an independent she-cuss. Maybe that's why I like you. Ina furnished Joel with a material for several stories that went over well. As the summer drifted solemnly past, he regarded her with increasing fondness. By the time fall came around, Joel considered himself on friendly terms with the wolf, though he never dared venture close enough to touch her. By this time, too, the curiosity of the countryside was more or less satiated in regard to the albino wolf, and the traffic of visitors had long since returned to normal, one every two weeks. Pete Martin worked the first homestead on the country road that led to Valley Junction. Pete Martin was the Valley's pride as a wolf hunter. Sent three sons and daughter through college on wolf hides, he often asserted, referring to the monthly bounty checks from the state. I'll give you fifty bucks for that wolf bitch, Pete told Joel. You'll be wintering in the city pretty soon, and you can't take the hellion with you. I want to cross her with some of my best dogs and raise me a breed of old good wolf hunters. Ina, six months old now and as big as a grown wolf, snoozed in the shade of the kennel Joel had built for her. Joel frowned. If I could think of some way to keep her, he told the homesteader, I'd never part with her. Under the circumstances, I'll take your offer. I'll be driving to the city within three days. I'll bring her by then. The two men shook hands solemnly on the agreement. That night, Ina burrowed under the chicken wire fence of her enclosure. Like a silent wraith, she disappeared into the trackless wilds of the pine forest. Joel drove his battered coop back to the city, fifty dollars poorer than he might have been. October winds rustled the waters of Wolf Lake. Deciduous trees turned red and gold and brown. The foothills blazed with nature's paint pot. November skies were leaden. The frost giants awakened in the earth. Snow smothered the valley and the hills. Existence in the wild turned bleak and harrowing. On silent pads, the wolf pack stole into the haunts of men. They followed the lead of the great white she-wolf, the largest and most cunning wolf ever seen. The wolves swept down from the hills and lurked in the swirling skirts of the blizzard to strike and kill. They took a costly toll from the livestock that pastured in the valley. The homesteaders cursed the white she-leader of the pack, Joel Cameron's name was anathema on every tongue. Ina was a year old the following spring. The handful of wolfling Joel Cameron had carried to his cabin a year before was now twice the size of the largest, sturdiest male in her pack. It was to this, and to her wise cunning, that she owed her leadership. Ina regarded the black wolves lolling around her in the warm sun. These were her kind, yet not her kind. She knew she was different in more ways than size and the color of her pelt. For weeks she had felt a restlessness stirring inside her, an inexplicable thrilling of unknown significance. Across the lake, which glittered like a turquoise jewel in its setting of forest emerald, the sun sparkled upon the snowy mantilla of the mountain that thrust bare stone shoulders up from a clinging bodice of pine woods. Memory stirred the mind of the white she-wolf. She was thinking of a cabin hidden in a woodsy draw, hard by the waters of the lake. She remembered a clean-lined young face, a soothing voice that had spoken to her in pleasing, unintelligible syllables. She remembered kindness and something that amounted to friendship with a creature who was called man. Ina whimpered and got up. The wolves rose with her and ringed around expectantly. A long moment, Ina stood poised and silent, dwarfing the members of her pack. A thought, feeling, a command went from her to them. The wolves sank back upon their haunches, tongues lolling. Ina turned and trotted alone into the forest. The white wolf padded silently along sun-bared The white wolf padded silently along sun-bared aisles of the forest. Her path led in an easy circle around the lake. Near sunset, she came unerringly upon the clearing occupied by Jewel Cameron's cabin. She crept into a thicket of elderberry trees and peered expectantly forth, not toward the cabin, for that with the setting sun was at her back. Her questing glance winged across the darkening blue waters of the lake and fixed upon the glowing summit of the mountain. Fascinated, Ina watched the fading beauty of it. The sky turned smoky-hued, a star or two glittered diamond hard. A golden glow paled the sable sky beyond the shoulder of the mountain. Crouched in the voiceless shadows, Ina held her breath and tingled with suspense. Instinct gave her thrilling warning. She was about to witness the essence of her difference from the wolf kind. The moon came up full. pumpkin-yellow disc and rested its chin upon the mountain to ponder the scene thoughtfully before commencing its climb into the sky. And Ina changed. The change shook her with ecstasy. Bubbling rapture accompanied the smooth flowing of supple muscles, the adjusting of bones in their sockets, an excitement of sensual pleasure engulfed in every nerve and sinew. Afterward, She lay for a long supine, one arm flung across her eyes to bar the eldritch glare of the moon, panting, trembling with remembered delight. She sat up at last and thrilled to the shapely beauty of her form. Ina knew she was a woman, and she was content. She did not question how this had come about. Ina crept down to the water's edge and surveyed her reflection in the dark surface of the lake. A faint breeze stirred the platinum tresses against round, golden shoulders. Her face was eager, full-lipped, with flaring brows accented her gray-hazel eyes. Her body was high of breast and long of leg, and the moonlight caressed her with a touch of mystery and magic. The cabin was still, highlighted and shadowed in the moon-brimming canyon. Ina padded around it in a cautious circle. The air was dead without scent. The man with a kind face and soothing voice was not here. Puzzled and hurt, Ina turned away. She swam a while in the icy waters of the lake, reveling in the tonic effect of the chill. Later, she roamed aimlessly, enjoying the easy response of her nerves and muscles. Once, her keen wolf sense detected a rabbit quaking in a patch of brush. She started it up, as the frightened animal ran out, she sprinted swiftly and seized it in her hands. The rabbit uttered a thin, terrorized shriek and died. Ina sank her teeth into the rabbit's throat and exulted in the gushing warmth of blood. She sat down upon the needled turf, methodically tore the animal to pieces, and ate it. From time to time in her wandering, Ina responded to her woman's nature and crept down to the lake to admire her reflection. The night was short, too short. Ina's aimless peregrination brought her just before dawn to another cabin. Pierre Lebrut lived here. Ina's sensitive nose caught the trapper's reek strong upon the air. A sluggish memory stirred in her brain. Ina snarled without sound and retreated with the prickling of invisible hackles stirring the length of her spine. A twig snapped under Ina's foot. Steel piano wire sang, and a bent sapling straightened with a rush. Ina was flung to earth. One foot jerked high in the wire noose of a snare. She thrashed in wild panic, clawing and snapping wolf fashion at the searing pain in her ankle. Within the musty cabin, Labrut sat up in his tumbled bunk. By gar, she sound like bear in dat trap. He slipped into heavy boots. He slept in his pants and undershirt, seized his rifle and hurried outside. Gray dawn lighted the east, reflected palely into the forest. LeBrute saw the woman caught in his snare, laid down his rifle and hurried to release her. Sacre d'Ande he muttered, slackening the wire to remove the noose from Ina's, slackening the wire to remove the noose from Ina's threshing ankle. Lady, you pick fine time and place for picnic, and what you do with no clothes on. Pierre was excited and his voice shrill. The scent of him was overpowering in Ina's nostrils. She bit him savagely on the calf. Pierre yelled in sudden fright. He fell heavily on the wolf girl, and she snapped and clawed in renewed terror. The man grunted with anger and fought her, pinioned her arms. You a wild one, ain't? Ina's body was closed, arched, and quivering. Pierre grinned. Maybe Pierre tame you with a kiss, ain't? The sun came up over the shoulder of the mountain and tinged the lake with blood. And Ina changed. It was no sensation of pleasure to return to the wolf. Ina felt the agony of the change in every muscle and nerve. She screamed with a horrid crunching and grinding of bones in her head. Lengthening into the lupine muzzle. Albino fur sprouted like a million thorny barbs from her tender skin. Pierre was still wide eyed and frozen with horror when the fangs of the agonized wolf ripped the life from his terror stricken body. Pete Martin looked grim as he pried open the stiffened fingers of the dead trapper. The wind stirred a tuft of albino fur on the dead man's palm. "You're albino bitch, Joel the homesteader said. Joel bit his lip. It's a devil of a thing for a man to come back to, Pete. He looked stolidly down at the dead man. Poor Pierre. He died hard. Joel brought his glance up to meet the kindly stare of the homesteader. I know the valley blames me for not killing Ina when she was a pup. Martin shrugged. It's too late now for blame, Joel. Maybe I'm to blame for not taking her with me the day I offered to buy her. I don't know. He scratched his long jaw. Well, we better see about getting Pierre properly planted, I guess. Joel's expression was darkly stormy. I feel responsible for the cattle. For Pierre. He wondered silently when and where the white wolf would kill again. He tongued his dry lips. I'll track her down and destroy her. There's a thousand dollars on her hide, Joel. Every homesteader in the valley chipped in. If I bring in her hide, Joel clipped, it won't cost the homesteaders a cent. The homesteader's gray eyes lighted with a friendly gleam. Figured you'd look at it like that, Joel. I'll give you what help I can. Joel spent the following month in the hinterland, returning to his cabin at intervals only to replenish supplies. The wolves were wary. He seldom came upon wolf sign and saw no wolves at all, but he heard them. By night, their lonesome song rang eerily through the forest and echoed from the mountains. Joel made final return to his cabin, and that night drove his coop down a moonlit road to the Martin homestead. Reckon you wouldn't find her, the homesteader acknowledged Joel's acquiescence to defeat. She knows she's hunted, and will always manage to be someplace else. She was here night before last with her pack and got my prize heifer. Joel made a gesture of despair. You see what I'm up against. Besides, I'm behind in my work. I came up here to finish a book. The publisher is yelling his head off for it. How can I write a book and hunt wolves, too? The homesteader spat a fine stream of tobacco juice. You go ahead and write your book, son. You've made your try, and warn't your fault you failed. Some of us are getting together in the morning. We'll take to the wolf trail and stick it out till we get her. Joel's heart felt heavy. He still had a fond memory of the white she-wolf he had nursed from babyhood. He remembered her attitude of sage intelligence, her qualities that had made her seem almost human. Then he remembered she had turned killer, and he peered into the moon shadows as he drove along the country road, half afraid he might spy her lurking there. He turned down the indistinct ruts, that led to his lakeside cabin, and another mile of bumpy going brought him home. The wobbling headlights swept across the cabin front, revealed an open door. Joel suffered mild panic. Had a bear forced entry? He could imagine the shambles the animal had made of the interior. He sprang out and approached the house cautiously, rifle ready. Everything inside was in order. He lit the mantle of the kerosene lamp went out and shut off the car lights and re-entered the cabin. Ina lay curled on a bearskin rug in front of the stone fireplace. Her platinum curls glistened silver contrast against the dull gold of her naked skin. She supported her chin with her hands and watched him with wide, wary eyes. A patch of full-moon brilliance, brighter than the lamplight, puddled the floor at her feet. Joel stared. She was a dream come to life. The shock of seeing her there dismayed him. Who are you? He essayed at last. Ina stirred languidly. Her expression mimicked a wolfish grin. Hot blood surged into Jules' cheeks. He caught up a dressing gown and flung it to her. Put it on, he ordered. Ina sobered, regarded the garment, and swung her level glance back to the man. Haven't you ever seen clothes before? He asked sarcastically. He crossed over and adjusted the robe hastily about her shoulders. Suppose one of the neighbors came by. The possibility was not likely, he knew. He said things simply to cover up his own shock and embarrassment. He sat down heavily in the leather club chair and stared at her. Ina stared back with friendly indifference. Joel's mind boiled with fantastic questions. The girl remained silent. Only her eyes spoke, and their meaning was not quite clear to the beleaguered man. He gave up trying to draw a word from her. Was she a deaf mute? Who was she? Why was she here? He recalled stories he had heard of white savages, but those were found only in the wilds of the South American jungle or in some hidden Shangri-La of Tibet. He tried to place her a racial type, but was unsuccessful. There was something familiar about the shape and look of her eyes, but what it was eluded him. He knew only that she was very beautiful, that he wanted her and he had never wanted another human being before. He could not know that Elena was not quite human. I can't sit here all night just looking at you, he said at last. He grinned with wry humor. It's an idea, though, at that, he stood up. Lady If you will consent to occupy the guest room tonight, the hotel can accommodate you. Joel held out his hand to help her rise. Ina moved like a flash, shaking off the encumbering dressing gown. She paused at the door and smiled at him. The lamplight made molten gold of her body, a tawny silhouette against the moon-silvered outdoors. Then she was gone, like a wolf goes on swift, silent pads. And with her— The warmth went from the cabin. Joel felt a chill, followed by a helpless feeling of immeasurable loss. In the cold, gray light of dawn, the cabin shivered to a thunderous knocking. Joel tumbled from bed, threw on a dressing gown, and greeted Pete Martin at the door. Martin was backed by half a dozen husky homesteaders. Thought I'd let you know we were heading along the wolf trail. Joel grumpily asserted the idea was a fine one. He was glad to know it. And now, would they go away and let him sleep? We wouldn't have stopped, Martin apologized. Except we wondered about your visitor last night. Joel's jaw cracked in the middle of a yawn. He swallowed hard and flushed blackly. Visitor? What visitor? he hedged. The homesteader crooked a finger, and Joel followed out upon the porch. Martin pointed out the wolf tracks that crossed and recrossed the yard. Those are the tracks of your white bitch, Joel. She came home last night. Didn't see her, did you? Joel closed his eyes. He felt a swimming sensation in his head. No, no, I didn't see her. Fantastically, he thought of the visitor he had seen and thought of her body mutilated and torn by sharp wolf fangs. He shuddered. The homesteader shrugged. Keep a lookout for her, Joel. She'll be back again and if we don't get her first. He gestured to his companions, and they filed off into the forest. Joel stood alone, looking down at the tracks, at one track that had gone unnoticed by the others, the single print of a woman's shapely foot. Joel Cameron was pleased with his own industry. He finished proofreading the final chapter of his book, gathered the manuscript together, and wrapped it for shipment. There, it was off his mind. He took the manuscript down to the village post office, collected a few necessary supplies. Toward sunset, he legged into his car and chugged away up the country road toward home. Night shadows fell swiftly. The sky turned smoky, then sequined. The moon came up full over the roof of the forest. Joel turned into the ruts that meandered through the woods to his cabin. Wobbling headlamps bored a tunnel through the gloom. The night was eerily still throughout the pine woods. Joel slewed the machine around a bumpy turn. The wolf woman stood starkly illuminated in the glare of the headlights. Joel jammed a foot on the brakes. He scrambled from his seat, calling. Ina flashed into the shadows. After two minutes' struggle with a whipping underbrush, Joel gave up and went back to his car. He was suddenly lonesome and despondent. He ground the coop through the final furlong and killed the motor in front of the cabin. Ina sat quietly upon the porch. Even with the lights off, Joel could see her there. Her form was tawny gold in the moonlight. Her hair was a flashing silver aura and haloing her laughing face. Joel started toward her, thought better of it, and sat on the running board. Ina was less than ten feet away. Joel said nothing. Ina answered in kind. After a while, Joel began to talk to her, softly. He mused and wondered aloud, letting his thoughts drift with the association of his words. Ina cocked her head attentively. She appeared to be listening, but he knew that his words held no meaning for her. What language would serve him? What syllables would convey to her knowledge of the tumultuous beating in his breast her simple presence evoked? He moved toward her, murmuring softly. He took the firm, golden flesh of her arm in his grasp. Ina looked up into Joel's strong, kindly face. Her eyes spoke the thought her tongue could not. Joel drew her gently to her feet. She swayed, and he caught her to him. Her lips were as tender and responsive as he had dreamed they would be. He took them, hungrily. Ina prowled the forest resentfully. She hated to be hunted. Twice, now, the coming of the full moon had brought her only pangs of frustration. The hunters who swarmed in the woods prevented her from going to the man she loved. The pine woods shimmered in the heat of midsummer. Hunters from all over the state, attracted by the enormous price on Ina's hide, came to blunder among the hills. When they went away, defeated, others came instead of them. Ina had no rest. She was hounded and harried. By night, The forest twinkled with campfires. Once, a hunter reckless enough to hunt alone had cornered the she wolf. Braving the fire of his weapon, Ina attacked and ripped the man to shreds of bloody ruin. The price on Ina's life doubled overnight. Once, too, she had been trapped by a horde of hunters and their dogs at the lip of a precipice overlooking Wolf Lake. The she wolf leaped and swam to safety through a hail of lead. The rock thereafter was called Wolf Leap, and Ina's character became legendary. The swelling moon nightly presaged the approach of the change. Ina longed for it, longed for the pleasure of her human form, and gladly paid with the pangs of her return to the wolf. All the savage ferocity of her wolf nature rebelled at the restriction the presence of hunters imposed. Then cunning asserted itself. Joel's cabin lay westward. Ina turned her pointed muzzle into the east. On silent pads she fled through the silver and dross of the moonlit forest. At dawn she rested. Facing northward, she took up her way for a number of hours. Then she turned into the west. It was easy running. The way led up steep mountainsides, down precipitous declivities. She swam mountain torrents, crossed ravines on fallen pines. When she hungered, she pulled down a white-tailed deer and gorged on the kill. In mid-afternoon, Ina made her way southward. She had completely encircled the hunters that swarmed in the forest. The white wolf came at last into familiar territory at the west end of the lake. She slackened her pace, although a frantic urge to hurry assailed her. She knew the limitations of her human form, and with moonrise tonight, the change would be visited upon her. She wanted to be close by the cabin when that came to pass. She had slightly more than an hour to span the miles that yet lay between. Ina skulked along in the shadowy underbrush, pausing at intervals to scent for danger. She soon paralleled the lake shore, a hurrying white wraith in the green gray shadows of the forest. The wind brought a smell of dampness off the lake, a formless breath of stale fishiness. The pines cast long shadows upon the water. The sky darkened in the east. A rifle cracked. The whistling missile spent itself far out over the lake, and Ina gathered her muscles with the instant response of spring steel and lunged ahead. A man yelled, and dogs began to bark frantically. Ina doubled away from the lake, putting on a fresh burst of speed. The wind had betrayed her. It had come to her nostrils from the sterile face of the water, while her danger lay on the other hand. A rifle spat livid flame in the green gloom ahead. Ina leaped, snarling and snapping at the trenchant pain in her shoulder. Spurting blood reddened her muzzle, stained the snowy pelt of her side. Other rifles cracked all around her. Rifle balls whined nastily through the woods. The yelping of dogs was bedlam. The white wolf recovered her stride in spite of her searing wound. She ran with desperation and terror, hounding her. Her goal and idea interlocked with a memory of a kindly face and a soothing voice. Ina fled for the protection of the one being in all the forest whom she loved, the one man among men who loved her. Joel Cameron heard the flat racketing of gunfire, the distant shouting and yelping. A strange uneasiness held him motionless, listening. He caught up his rifle and hurried to the door. The noise swelled louder by the moment. Twilight pressed down upon the forest, swirled into the clearing about the cabin. Joel saw the men, then, flitting silhouettes between the pines, limned against the tarnished silver of the lake. The forest trembled with the belling of the dog pack. His ears caught another sound, nearer more terrifying. He heard the swift whisper of racing pads, the sound of a heavy body hurtling through the undergrowth. The enormous pale form of the wolf leaped from the forest edge, charged relentlessly toward him. A mental gong sounded in the man's clamoring brain. Joel's rifle snapped automatically into the hollow of his shoulder. The report ripped echoes from the hills. The murderous shock of the ball lifted the white wolf flung her with bleeding breast back upon her haunches. Gathering the last atom of her strength, Ina lunged and fell kicking at Joel Cameron's feet. The man sighted carefully for the mercy shot that would send a bullet crashing into Ina's brain. The moon came up full over the shoulder of the mountain, bridged the lake with its golden track, thrust a questing beam through a gap in the pines. The engulfant glow caressed Ina's wolf form, Nina died with the ecstasy of the change soothing the agony of her hurts. Joel stared, uncomprehending. The rifle fell from his nerveless grasp. Slowly, his knees buckled. He dropped beside the huddled girl shape, gathered limp, tawny shoulders against his chest, and buried his face in the silver cloud of her hair. He was holding her like that when the hunters burst into the moonlit clearing. He did not look up even when they went silently away.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The White Wolf of the Heart's Mountains and other lycanthropic tales. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.